0: Bibles to John chapter 17, this is the uh, second part of a two-parter on John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. I'm going to read from verse 6 all the way to the end, so it's quite a long reading, but I'll pray briefly afterwards and then we'll begin. John chapter 17, verse 6, this is Jesus praying to his Father I may know to, known to them your name and i will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and i in them now let's pray and so father as we come to your word now even the prayer of jesus himself i pray that you would help me that you would fill me with love for your people a clarity of voice and a boldness and confidence in your word that Christ may be seen and beheld and loved and followed. Pour out your Spirit upon us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, last week um, we looked at verses 1 to 5, uh, the first part of, of Jesus' high priestly prayer, the greatest prayer ever made. And when we saw how in his darkest hour, Jesus prayed for himself, that his glory would be manifested through the cross, and in giving his disciples eternal life. Now the rest of this prayer divides into two remaining parts uh, where he prays first for his immediate disciples, that's the apostles, look at verse six, I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. That's the disciples' immediate. And then, secondly, down in verse 20, he prays for all believers in all times, including us. You see it there. I do not ask for these only, that is, those original disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is, every Christian who will ever come to believe through that original and apostolic testimony written in the Scriptures, preached and believed, that includes us, friends any believer in here today Jesus is clear in his prayer that he is praying for believers not everyone he says in verse 9 I am praying for them I am not praying for the world so he is praying for you and me in this prayer this is an expansive prayer it moves out if you like in concentric circles a prayer even that shows the expansive love of Of Jesus Christ for his people as our great high priest the one who will make a full and final sacrifice for sins in his own body now Pastor Rob referred back to the Old Testament and Leviticus I'm going to refer back to the Old Testament and Exodus 28 you don't need to look at Exodus 28 you can read Exodus 28 this afternoon I encourage you but you read in Exodus 28 about the garments of the priest specifically in the inauguration of the priesthood through Aaron and his sons. An ephod was made. An ephod is kind of like a a linen apron. And on the shoulders, there were two onyx stones. Engraved on the stones were the names of the sons of Israel, six on each onyx stone. And the priest was to wear that ephod and then bear their names before the Lord in remembrance, that is the phrase that's used, as he entered the Holy of Holies. And then over that that ephod was a, a breastplate that was worn. Again, this had 12 precious stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And again, as it is worn, and as the priest enters that Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, he was to bear those names before the Lord in remembrance. And so you see what we have here. We have a picture in the Old Testament of what Jesus fulfills in the New Testament. Jesus enters the Holy of Holies in prayer to His Father and bears the names and needs of His people in remembrance before Him. That's what He's doing here in John 17. And that's what He's doing right now at the right hand of God, risen and ascended in His heavenly session, interceding for us, ever living to intercede for us. The writer of Hebrews says, and Jesus never forgets a name and he never forgets a need. A need for those who are his. A great thought that, isn't it? That he's interceding for you right now before the Father. Robert Murray Machane once said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Sometimes, isn't it that, that the case? We we can think theologically, Jesus rose, he's now in heaven, in glories, the throne, the seraphim, the angels, the, the people worship, worshiping him, but but I can't really get him. He's, he's so far away. But to know he's praying for you, to know he's Ever living to intercede for you to know it's like he's in the next room praying for you Oh, what can man do to, to you now where are your fears where is your unbelief it's gone now when someone says they will pray for you I'm sure you're thankful for their care you might uh, doubt whether they'll do it often we you say oh I'll pray for you and then often we forget about it but you're thankful for their care when you hear that someone has been praying for you for a long time maybe years you are thankful for their love. But when you know that Jesus, the Son of God, prays for you for two thousand years and counting, you should feel perfectly loved and totally secure. Because Jesus gets what Jesus prays for. Now, you're probably thinking as I read the scripture there, that passage, that's a long passage, we're gonna be here a long time and how is he gonna unpack this? That's what I've been trying to figure out all week. Um, but what I'm gonna do, uh, it had been possible for me to do justice to every verse in the rest of this prayer. I mean, some pastors and theologians of old have pre- prayed, uh, preached this prayer for countless sermons. I'm just gonna focus on one verse and then I'm gonna spring off of that verse into other key verses so that we hopefully get the main thrust Of our Lord's words as we eavesdrop the privilege of this eavesdropping on the second person of the trinity bearing his soul and his deepest desires to the first person of the trinity verse 24 is my key verse father i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So keep your finger on that key verse and then we'll be going out to other verses but returning to that. And very simply, I want us to look at this in just in two parts. I want us to look at number one, those for whom Jesus prays and number two, that for which Jesus prays. Those for whom Jesus prays and that for, what Jesus, for which Jesus prays but beforehand let, just consider this these are some of jesus's last words before the cross okay so we're in the context here of the farewell discourses discourse in chapters beginning with the Lord's Supper in verse, chapter 13, and then we go through 14 to 16, and he's instructed his disciples on what it will mean for them to be his follower after his departure in the face of temptation and opposition from a hostile world and the devil himself. He, he wants to encourage them not to lose heart and not to have troubled hearts. Now, last words are important, aren't they? Last words are often written down in what we call a will or a last will and testament, a legal document that lays out your desires, your will for how and whom your assets will be distributed. So, this is Jesus' will, if you like. He says in verse 24, Look, Father, I desire. That word desire literally means I will. I will. Here he comes as the son whose father always hears and answers exactly what he wants. And Jesus says to his father, I desire, father, I will. And he does it based on his supreme confidence in his father's love for him and his father's promises to him. Of course, in the agony of Gethsemane to come, you'll remember that he'll wrestle with the thought of drinking the cup of his Father's wrath in the place of sinners like you and me. And after asking if there is another way, Jesus says, yet not my will but yours be done. But we know, we know that it's always Jesus' will to do the will of his Father. He says earlier in the Gospel of John, it is my food to do the will of the Father. But also Jesus is confident, not only in the Father's love for him, but because the Father has made promises to him that he'll always fulfill. If we think all the way back to Psalm 2, uh, listen to this. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So here the psalmist is speaking of God's promise to King David that would be fulfilled in the messianic heir of David, the Son of God, Jesus, to whom God has promised an inheritance of nations, every tribe and tongue, a people. The Father loves the Son and promises him a people. This is why the Son can pray with such confidence, and with His last words, He can unburden His soul and express His last will and testament, Father, I desire this. This is Your Son, whom You love, and to whom You've made promises. Fulfill Your promise. You know, like some of us dads, don't we? We say to our, our kids when they're young, we, we say, we'll do such and such, and then we'll forget about it, and then they come up to us and say, you promised. You promised. And we're we're caught then. We have to do it, right? But the Father makes promises to the Son in love and He always fulfills His promises. Is that how you come to pray when you pray, friends? Are you so conscious of the Father's love for you and His promises made to you that are all yours in Christ? You know, the more that you meditate on that fact, the more you will pray. It's guaranteed. It's this very posture that stirs us up to pray I often say I I think it was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that says before you enter into prayer with all of your requests meditate on the fact of how much you've been loved by the Father in the Son and all the promises made to you meditate on that now open your mouth and pray my Father loves me Jesus died for me he's made promises to me I can confidently ask for them, knowing He will fulfill them, not always in my timing and not always in my way, but always according to His sovereign wisdom and love. So Jesus reveals His will as He prays confidently to His loving, promise-keeping Father. So then let's look at this prayer further in two parts, and let's particularly look at this key verse in, in two parts. Let's look firstly at those for whom Jesus prays. We've already seen that the subjects of his prayer are his immediate disciples and also all Christians who will believe. It's as if Jesus casts his eye beyond the cross and down the whole landscape of church history, and that includes anyone who is a believer in here today, that's you and me, and those who will believe in the future. And maybe it's you sitting here today You're not a believer. You've not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And maybe you'll believe today for the first time. He's praying for that. But I want us to see how he describes those for whom he prays. How he describes those for whom he prays. Back to our key verse in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, whom you have given me. Jesus describes the believer as given. So we could say this, the Christian is a love gift from the Father to his Son. Chosen by the Father, given to the Son. You know that is the deepest truth that can be said about you. Think of that. The deepest truth, you are given by the Father to the Son. It says the same in verse 6, verse 9, verse 12. They all say the same thing. In the covenant of redemption, the Father takes the initiative. He says, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And again at the end of verse 9, for they are yours, Jesus says. The initiative of the Father, a humbling and reassuring truth, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you are owned by a good and gracious Father and given to the Son. But Jesus says in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine. So there is a mutual ownership. Isn't that a wonderful thought that God would look at you and, and me and say, mine? Mine, 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 mine. Owned by God. Possession of God. But the Father also gives the Son to save sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. John three sixteen. So so when Jesus prays for you, he doesn't have to twist his father's arm. Because the Father's already loved you. He chose you, he gave you to his son as a love gift and he sent his son to die for you this is my ultimate assurance my salvation is not grounded in my frail hold of him but in his sovereign gracious choice of me my salvation is not grounded in my response to christ vital though that be but it, that it was god the father's good pleasure to give me to his son Not because I earned it, but because he is gracious, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. How sweet the sound. So friends, as we feel the rise and fall of our experience and faith as it goes up and down, as we experience temptation and weaknesses, high days and low days, moments of great progression and backsliding terribly, This is our great comfort. It delivers us from self-absorption and a circumstance-based living. The Father says to the Son, I am going to give you, Jared, Gail, Mavis, Robbie, so on. Put your name in there. I am going to give you, and he or she is my love gift to you. what anxieties do you face right now how are you going to hold up in the next week you're going to hold up knowing that you're a love gift from the father to his son that's how you'll hold up gifts uh, express our love to others don't they you know some people get a, a rubbish gift Christmas, birthday, whatever, and you politely say, well, it's the thought that counts. <laughs> well, to some extent, yes, but the idea is that the, the quality of the gift expresses the, the love that you have for that person. I'm wearing today a gold tie pin that my wife bought me for my 21st birthday, and it's, uh, it's an antique uh, gold t- type in, it's got little pearls in it, I think it's 24 karat gold, and it must have cost her, I mean, back in those days, in the late 80s, she was not earning much, it must have cost her two or three weeks wages, and I thought, boy, she must love me to buy me this, but what do you give the one who has everything? You give the one who has everything, a people for his own, a people to praise him, a bride to love him. The biblical view of marriage is of a woman who is given to a man. Just as God made the first woman and as the first father of the bride in Genesis 2, he brought her to the man. She is from him and she is for him. And so traditionally, at a wedding, based on that creation, order, truth, a minister will ask, who gives this woman to this man? And the father of the bride says, I do. And as the marriage with Christ happens in the heart of a person upon believing, and as the question is asked, who gives this person? The father in heaven answers, I do. I give him, I give her to my son, and they are my love gift to him. So here we have the son as the great high priest, but also as a loving bridegroom, interceding for his bride as he, he has received her and, and he, he brings her needs before the Father. He knows her frame. Oh, he sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses. He took on flesh, you know. He knows. Peter is about to deny him. The rest are about to scatter. Satan and the world are in opposition. Jesus knows the frame of his bride and he's praying for his bride. I think there is a strong incentive and instruction here for us husbands with our brides. Husbands, you have a a priestly role to to play. My question is are you interceding for your wife in love and care? Peter says in 1 Peter 3 Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you treat your bride according to her creation as woman, and her frame being different from yours, yet equally valuable as a Christian? Or are you harsh? unloving towards her are you like Adam in the garden when he ignores his own sin of passivity and instead blames God and blames Eve Eve who yes was sinning greatly your wife will sin and yet he says you gave me that woman yes Adam God did give you that woman as a love gift and you are to reflect Husbands, you are to reflect the very love of the bridegroom Christ in the way that you live with her, in the way that you love her. And men, part of living with her in an understanding way is actually praying for her, interceding for for her. If you're not praying for your wife, you're being a neglectful husband, not a Christ-like husband, He prays for his bride. Christ-like husbands then pray for her good daily, part of which is praying that God would help you overcome your own sin. If you don't live with her in an understanding way, Peter tells us, your own relationship, your own communion with God will be damaged. I think this is a healthy exhortation for all of us husbands, certainly for me. So Jesus describes those for whom He prays as those who are given as a love gift from the Father to the Son. But the one who is a love gift is also separated from the world to be obedient to the Word. Separated from the world to be obedient to the world. A bride longs to look her best for the one who has chosen her as the object of his love. A good wife seeks to please her husband. A good wife seeks to follow his lead. Jesus says, his disciples are those in verse 6, whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Out of the world, kept your word. There you have it, separated from the world and given to the Son to be obedient to the word. If you like, the evidence that you are chosen as a Christian, as Christ's bride, is if you're obedient to the bridegroom. Let me ask you this. Where in the world do you stand? Where in the world do you stand? I heard a good answer to this. And the answer went like this. By nature, I am in the world and of the world. But by grace, I am in the world But not of the world by nature I am in the world and of the world but by grace I am in the world but not of the world that means we must be different from the world friends by being obedient to the word and what will that do it's going to set us in opposition to the world as we're sent into the world verse 14 I have given them your word And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. If Christians separated from the world and formed a communion, a commune, sorry, the world wouldn't hate us because the world wouldn't see us. But if we remain in the world, but separate from the world and obedient to the word, then the world will hate us. Because we are visible witnesses to Jesus and the world hates Jesus Jesus put it like this in verse 10 I am glorified in them our frail but obedient lives become pointers to the glory of Jesus separated from the world to be obedient to the word to glorify Jesus I find it Interesting here, you know, that Jesus is praying about fragile, often disobedient people like you and me. Often disobedient, and yet describes them as obedient. So this is not perfect obedience in view, but it's a real and true obedience. The disciples failed Jesus here and there, as you and I do, but in the end they stood with him. You notice if you read uh, John chapter 6, at the beginning there are oh there are thousands of people following Jesus, around Jesus, as he performs miracle of, uh, of, the, of the fishes and the loaves. But as he begins to speak about himself and his exclusive claims, the people fall away and he's left with the twelve. And he, he turns to them as if this, and he says, and will you too leave me? And Peter says, no, no, we won't. To whom else can we go? To whom else can we go? And then we see Peter deny Jesus in a tragic fall, but then he returns to Jesus, Peter the great apostle. All of our lives bear marks of failure, but Jesus can say to his father, they have obeyed. You may say here today, I fail and I fail, but the question is, are you repenting? Are you returning so that the direction of your life is separated from the world and obedient to the Word? Back to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, whom you have given me, in summary, Of my first section the first point those for whom Jesus prays are those who are given as a love gift from the Father to the Son which means they are separated from the world and obedient to the Word and so finally we need to see secondly then that for which Jesus prays those for whom Jesus prays now that for which Jesus prays continuing in verse 24 Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This is Jesus' deepest desire. It is his will that all Christians everywhere will be with him to see his glory. With him to see his glory. Isn't that the deepest desire of a married couple? To be with one another in intimate fellowship. To be in each other's presence. Married couples cultivate that. Being with one another. How we've missed in the last couple of years, how we missed being together, didn't we, for long periods. Sharing fellowship with one another. We missed that fellowship. But Jesus wants you with him. He doesn't want your looks. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your talents or your great works. He wants you. He wants you with him because you are his precious one. You are precious in Jesus' sight. He wants you with him because you're a love gift from the Father. But why does he want you with him, ultimately? He wants you You to see him in all of his glory he wants you to see him in all of his glory see you and i we've only seen his glory veiled even demeaned in this world but but he wants you to see him in his original glory that which he had before the foundation of the universe from eternity past in face-to-face communion loving communion As the father looks upon the son and says, I love you, and the son looks to the father and says, I love you, in this holy communion of love. What a thing, friends. It's like when when something glorious happens in our lives, we long for those we love most to be able to see it, don't we, and share our joy. A glorious newborn baby is born, and we want family and friends to come and and see him or her. Our sports team wins, and, and we want to celebrate that glory with fellow supporters. We have an event that happens in our lives that is good and glorious, and, and we think of those loved ones who have died, and we say, I wish they'd been here to see that and share in that glory. I'm getting on a bit now. My son can beat me at running, and wrestling, and almost anything physical. I've raced, in a running race, I've raced both my daughter and my daughter-in-law. I recently raced my daughter, I think she actually won, although I told her it was a tie. Then she wanted to do it again, and I was like, I think your mum needs me now, because I was out of breath. When I raced my daughter-in-law a few years ago, it felt like every muscle would tear and every joint would explode as I was trying my best to, to beat her so I've avoided a rematch and my son-in-law beats me comfortably at pool, swimming and golf, it's depressing. And they all like to give me a bit of friendly banter about dad's fading body. They even send me memes sometimes, I'll leave that to your imagination. And as each year goes by I'm getting weaker and a little bit stiffer in my joints and they're getting stronger and faster and that's good. But naturally, deep down, there's a human longing inside that, that says, I wish you'd seen me in my prime. I wish you'd seen me in my prime. I often think back to uh, when I, I look at my mom now. You know, She's in her late 70s. And, and I think of my mom when she was, uh, when she was young. And uh, uh, she had amazing energy courageous we moved to to america Uh, when no one was doing that back in the in late 1970s you have to make a new life there Uh, my dad had to go back to the uk and, and and he had a job offer there and she was left to pack up everything look after our kids sell the house uh move back i mean we we often look at our parents when they are older and we forget that they did and they dared long before we ever did anything they blazed a trail in their glory days, if you like. Of course, as Christians, we can know that as our bodies fade, the glory of Christ is being formed in us more and more until in resurrected bodies one day we will see his glory. And this is Jesus saying here, Father, I want them to see me in my prime. I want them to see me in all my pre-incarnate glory. I want them to see me as I really am. But for us to be with Jesus, to see his glory, there are things that must happen to take us home. We must be protected. We must be sanctified and we must be united. Three things I want us to to look at as we spring back to some other texts here which fit underneath that, bringing us home to be with Jesus. First, we must be protected, kept if you like, from the world and the devil. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. His disciples are not being taken out of the world, but sent into the world. Jesus' work is accomplished, and he's going home, but the disciples' work has just begun. So Jesus brings his disciples into the presence of his Father and says, Keep my treasure for me. Look after it. They're my greatest treasure. In other words, protect them from the influence and persecution of a world that will hate me and all of my followers. Let them not be seduced by it. Let them not be finally destroyed by it. Keep them in your name. That phrase there, in the location of your name. Protect them by keeping them loyal to all that you are and all that the world is not. And next, he says, keep them from the evil one. So protect them from the world, protect them from the devil. It's down there in verse 17. Keep, uh, sorry, verse 15. Keep them from the evil one. Satan wants to hinder your progress. He is an adversary, Peter says, who is a roaring lion who wants to devour your faith. So brothers and sisters, remember this. You and I are in a spiritual warfare. The world would have you believe there is no devil. And when... We as Christians forget to fight against the devil, we begin to fight with each other. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is whom our war is with. I've always found it interesting that having just expounded on marriage and parenting in Ephesians 5 and the beginning of Ephesians 6, Paul then warns us about the work of Satan and how we are to be armed against his assault. Satan hates the Christian family and will do all he can to set you against one another. So you must fight against him, not each other. And one way is through prayer. Jesus prayed, keep them from the evil one. And of course, you remember, doesn't he? He instructs us in the Lord's prayer. Pray, deliver us from evil. That is the evil one. And you fight the devil with faith. Faith in Christ. The one who is stronger than the devil. The one who is praying for you. The one who died for you, rose, and is returning. Because you know that no one can snatch a true believer from the hand of the Father and the Son. So Jesus prays for our protection in order to bring us to be with him. He also prays for our sanctification. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, he says in his prayer, verse 17. Having described a disciple as one who is obedient to the word, earlier on, as we've seen, he now prays for their continued sanctification. We must continue in our sanctification, friends. What makes you holy isn't a one-time decision for Christ or simply attending here today. What makes you holy is eating and digesting the Word of God. It's picking up your Bible, picking up your Bible prayerfully and reading it regularly. It's about coming here on a Sunday hungry to receive spiritual food and be changed by it. I was always struck, I remain struck by being in Zambia at a leaders conference a few years ago. Amanda and I were there and hundreds of these pastors came. Hundreds. And they heard exposition after exposition in blazing hot heat probably six in a day and then they came back the next day as they walked home and came back and they sat upright leaning in to the word of God hungry and something special happened in that conference because God blesses those who are hungry for his word he sanctifies them in the truth too often we allow our appetites to be satisfied by other less nutritional things and we're not hungry when it comes to dinner time That's why your mum used to say, isn't it? Don't snack before dinner. You'll ruin your appetite. You come here today, but are you hungry for his word? Do you want to be nourished by it? Do you want to be changed by it? Or have you been snacking on things that have ruined your appetite? Friends, those who will live holy lives are those who are sanctified by the truth. So those who will be with Jesus must be protected, sanctified, and finally, they must be united we see this in verse 21 22 23 you can sum jesus words up like this "O father that they may be one even as we are one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me jesus prays for the witness of a complete loving unity that displays the loving unity of the father and son to the world that's what he's praying for It's not a unity at the expense of truth. He's already given the foundation of truth for sanctification. Sanctify them in the truth. This is a unity bound together in love. It's love that rejoices with the truth, the Apostle Paul tells us. It's a a unity that's visible in things like the Lord's Supper. United in Christ, united to one another, coming to take the elements together as we remember what he's done for us, waiting for one another as we drink together and eat together. And so we love doctrine in order to love one another. I've always been encouraged as a pastor at this church and I've heard new people come in and they've been struck by the good teaching here. You know what they say? The people are really loving Boy, that's good. good news to hear if you're a pastor. It means the truth's going in and the truth's transforming you to be loving people. Jesus says, this is how they will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. It's a, a witness. Bruce Milne, commenting on this passage, says that loveless disunity is the biggest barrier to Christian witness. Now listen carefully to this list. And see if it marks you. Not someone else in here, see if it marks you. Milne says this gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, failure to appreciate others, self preoccupation, greed selfishness and every other form of lovelessness he says these are the squalid enemies of effective evangelism friends it is so amazing that so often we we who have been loved so much love one another so little we show that we know little of god and his grace we demand something from each other before we will extend love that's not god's love He loved us while we were still sinners. He calls us then to love our enemies even when we in here act like enemies towards one another. May we truly repent of these loveless sins that are on Milne's list and others, I'm sure. And may we prove ourselves to be true disciples who will unite with one another and be with Jesus at the end. Have you failed here? As you think about that list, have you failed here? Well, I want you to take heart. I want you to take heart and I want you to remember Jesus is praying for you. Remember what Jesus says to Peter? Peter is about to deny him three times and he says to him in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, And when you have turned, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you. When you turn, go strengthen the others. So don't just be convicted of your sin right now. Remember this. Jesus died for you and Jesus is praying for you. Now turn back and go and encourage others. We must finish. So friends, as we finish, remember this we are Jesus' most precious jewels if we're Christians. And like the Old Testament high priest who bears those precious jewels with the names of God's people on his chest, those for whom Jesus prays are love gifts from the Father to the Son, separated from the world in order to obey the Word. So then that for which Jesus praises, Father, protect them From the evil one and a hostile world. Sanctify them and unite them and bring them home to me that they may be with me to see my glory. So that even the death of a Christian is an answer to Jesus' prayer. Have you ever thought that? I want him with me it's an answer to Jesus' prayer and when we think I mean we might be grieving even here in in terms of loved ones lost it's hard when, when we're left but for them they are beholding the glory of Jesus face to face an answer to his prayer in his time bring them home I want them to be with me oh to know that I am not only on his lips but in his heart and all the resources of heaven are being brought to bear in order to bring me home to be with Jesus at the end and there we have it friends he ever lives, to make his intercession, to bring us to eternal glory, to see him. Isn't that what you want? To see Jesus in all his glory, to push past all those others, those loved ones that you will be reunited with. You want to push past them all when you get to heaven to see Jesus. Our Lord has been praying for you for 2,000 years. He's not going to stop now and what jesus prays for jesus gets you are utterly secure in the love of god so let us go on together jesus prayers will hold us fast let's pray and so father even as we've heard the very words of jesus the word of god and we know that he's praying for us now i pray that you would manifest by your spirit greater faith in us now that we would look to christ and all that he is with us that we would take heart that we would be encouraged to press on in the truth united to one another fighting against satan avoiding the influences of the world in an expression of the love even the love of the father for the son in his name i pray amen let's stand together and sing once more friends god is beautiful God is almighty, and God is love. He is so loving. Listen to the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Go in peace, you're dismissed.